Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Good morning. It is Saturday, October the 30th. I'm Ali Velshi. We find ourselves this weekend in the midst of a major breakthrough on President Biden's landmark plan to shore up America's social safety net. There is much that we stand to gain from the hard fight compromise that the president announced this week. But there is much that we are about to lose. The original ambitious plan was cut in half to reach this compromise. Let's start with what's in the bill. You've got billions of dollars for universal pre-kindergarten, elder home care, the expanded tax credit expanded for the year 2022, clean energy tax credits, expanded health care coverage, expanded Medicare for hearing services, money for affordable housing and immigration reform funding. And that is all transformational, especially when it comes to the funds that are going toward clean energy and climate investments. This will be the largest clean energy investment in U.S. history, with billions of dollars going toward clean energy tax credits, resilient investments, and incentives for businesses to consume fewer fossil fuels. Another transformational program is the $400 billion toward child care. That would come out to a little over 24000 for the 1.6 million preschool-age kids in America. Now, if Democrats actually manage to get this bill passed, that could pi- finally put us on par with other developed countries. Let me just give you a quick comparison of how much developed countries spend on child care for toddlers. Norway's at the top of the chart with nearly $30,000 per child. Iceland, Finland, Denmark all spend more than $20,000 per child. Then you got the United States, which until now spends about $500 per child before this new bill. There are, however, a lot of important and popular programs that didn't make it in. They include an increase in paid family leave, free community college, expanded Medicare coverage for dental and vision and prescription drug reform. And that is a huge opportunity cost. America is missing a rare chance to catch up to how other developed nations treat their citizens. Take parental leave, for example. As Bloomberg News puts it, quote, only six countries are as stingy as the United States about paid maternity leave. Those other countries are the Marshall Islands, the Federated States of Micronesia, Nauru, Palau, Papua New Guinea and Tonga. And then America. Most other developed and developing countries have at least some form of paid parental leave. You have certain so-called moderates in the United States saying the richest country in the world can't afford to do more for its citizens. But at this point, America really can't afford not to do more. When it comes to how much other countries spend per person on social benefits and services for disability, unemployment, tax credits, the U.S. remains far, far behind. According to the latest available data from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, that's an organization of all major developed countries, France spent about 31% of its GDP on social services for its citizens. Finland, 29%. Belgium, 28.9%. Italy, 28 The United States is at 18.7%. This is the country that so many conservatives worry is sliding towards socialism. 
So, yes, although President Biden's Build Back Better plan has been scaled down, it is still big. It is still transformational for this country. But most reasonable people would agree that America has a long way to go. And people like me worry that this was our best chance. We're still in the midst of a pandemic that has pushed millions of people off of a financial cliff, many of whom still haven't recovered. And the temporary government assistance that was helping them survive has largely dried up. If there was ever a moment for America to prove that it, 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 that it is the modern country that it is, now is that moment. The opportunity cost of missing this chance to go big and enact robust social programs to actually bring America closer to that more perfect union could far outweigh the dollar amount some in Washington cannot seem to get beyond. Joining me now is Heather Boucher. She's a member of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. And obviously, Heather, you and I have known each other for a long time, but your job is at the White House. So I think it's your job to tell me that this is wildly transformational. And I agree with most of that. I'm mostly sad about the things you and I used to talk about, the things that can be achieved that do not bring the United States on par with our developed nation peers in some cases, like like with maternal uh, and parental leave. Well, good morning, Ollie. And you know that, um, as you've just outlined, this is a historic accomplishment that the deal um, that the president has come to with the members of Congress uh, to push forward a nearly $1.8 trillion plan that will be transformational for American families, for the American economy. And we are going to make the most historic um, and important investment in addressing climate change in our nation's history. And um, we cannot lose sight of that fact. Now, I mean, as you've also pointed out, the president aimed high. You know, the vision that he laid out during the campaign and the Build Back Better plan that he put forth this spring, this, um, you know, the compromise does not include every piece. But here's what we've learned. The agenda that the president put out was popular. Um, people need that fulsome uh, set of policies. And, you know, we will make progress on the things that we're going to do now. And we'll have to come back and keep fighting for the rest of it. And the president is committed to doing that. But we can't lose sight that American families, the American economy, the climate needs us to act now. And so we need to step forward on the things that we can all agree that we can do right now and then um, keep working for the rest of it. And I think you at the end of that sort of pointed out what I was kind of getting at here, that um, certainly on climate, there are other things you can fix later and, and, and they'll be fixable. The climate thing, we're we're past most deadlines that people need us to be. So I'm, I'm most worried about that. But how does the rest of it, how does the come back and get more look? Is the idea that these are popular programs, once the version that gets passed gets out to people, they will become more popular and that Congresses in future will see the benefit of either continuing what's been done or augmenting it? Well, here's the thing. As you pointed out in that opening, many of these investments are long-standing needs the United States has had. It's not that they just showed up this year. We've long known that we've needed to make investment in children and families. We've long known that we've needed to continue to make investments in our healthcare system. We've long known that we needed to fix our tax code so that it rewarded work and not wealth. So these are things that we've known we've needed to do, and now we're going to make progress on them. We're going to show um, the success 
us of how effective we can be at addressing these challenges. And quite frankly, we're already showing that, right? We put in place with the American Rescue Plan, um, you know, this monthly child tax credit that's gone out to every family with children, almost every family with children all across America, a monthly deposit into their checking account or a monthly check, showing that success and what government can do and the real impact in people's lives, the effect on poverty, fewer children going hungry. Let's show what we can do and then keep building on those wins. But let me come back to that core point. We cannot afford to wait to make the changes on climate. So we need to take that win and move forward because otherwise America's children will not have the kind of environment that we need them to grow up in. So, Heather, the advantage of having you here is that you are steeped in the data on these matters. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, part of the Department of Labor, only about 8% of low-wage earners who earn less than $35,000 a year have access to paid family leave, compared to 20% of all workers and 33% of high-wage earners. Now, in my world, 100% of all three categories should have uh, should have access to that. But as we've mentioned, other countries appear to have figured this out um, and plan to offer, even now, the plan to offer four weeks of paid medical leave has been cut from this framework. Work. So how do we get the, the, the most important stuff to the lowest hit, you know, the hardest hit workers? It's an employment issue, right? We are short of workers in this country and we kind of need to not have people stuck not working because we can't adequately provide for them uh, when they need this kind of leave. A hundred percent. And that's one of the reasons why paid leave is so important. And the president is committed to continuing to fighting for it. But here's the thing. If you look at the policies that um, that are in the, the the Build Back Better Act that, you know, the House is talking about right now, you know, the policies around child care, pre-kindergarten and home health care, those all include robust steps to increase the wages of those care workers. These are some of the lowest paid workers in our economy. Many of them do not have access to things like paid leave nor other kinds of benefits. And we're seeing right now that those sectors of the economy are struggling as, um, you know, as other low-wage jobs are seeing raises. It's hard to have those child care workers. So we're going to make progress on supporting low-income families, low-wage workers, through these steps to raise the wages of care workers and lower costs for families. So we have to keep in mind that there are a lot of steps inside this package that will support families across the income distribution. Heather, good to talk to you as always. Thank you for joining us this morning. I could go on for this for a long time, so hopefully you'll come back and we'll talk about more of the things as we know more about what the final bill has in it. Heather Boucher is a member of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. Joining me now is Democratic Congresswoman Gwen Moore of Wisconsin. She's a member of the House Ways and Means Committee, the first African-American elected to Congress from Wisconsin. Congressman Moore, good morning. Good to see you. Thank you for uh, being with us. Oh, good morning. And I really enjoyed uh, listening to Heather. Uh, She and really, I appreciated your setup uh, as well uh, for this conversation that we're going to have. The only thing that I take issue with you, Allie, is, uh, you know, talking about the the Build Back Better provisions uh, as being a safety net or referring to them as only social programs. I mean, I think that these programs contribute as much to our growing uh, economy uh, as anything. 
Well, you're you're 100 percent right on that. And I, I take that criticism. And we, we have to we should probably make sure we don't uh, characterize them that way, because you're right. In every other country that does this, it is directly related to an increase in productivity. Right. If you give people proper child care, they work. If you give people pop, proper parental and maternal uh, leave, they don't leave their jobs. They advance in their careers. They make more money. They pay taxes. Those taxes build our roads and keep our society going. So you're absolutely right. It's a return on investment. We got derailed in the beginning of this conversation, you know, months ago, because it became about the bill. It became about the, the, the total amount of the bill as opposed to what benefit it brings to people. And just mischaracterize this socialism. Um, you know, when you stop and think about it, think about it, Allie. You know, people are complaining about uh, slow GDP. Yep. Well, you know, what's the point in growth for the sake of growth mm-hmm. if it all just goes to the top? Right. You know, they're, they're complaining about labor market participation. Get up off your lazy butts and come back to work. Well, my God, how can you do that when you don't have child care or when yep. child care costs 20 percent of your income? Um, you know, how can you afford to work? You know, if you're a low wage worker, some of the folks that Heather was talking about, if you're a low wage worker, and you're single and don't have any children, we're literally taxing you into poverty by not providing you as a single person with the earned income tax credit and so on and so and and, and on. And so I I just think that when you look at one labor force participation, women, this is the lowest it's been since 1988. Uh, And so well, you know, and that's uh, directly related to to child care and parental and maternal leave. That that I mean, is directly related to that, because while we have a labor shortage, you go down any restaurant here in New York and it, they're looking for work. Well, so child care workers uh, are harder to find. So child care, which was already expensive, you said sometimes 20 percent has now gone up even more. That keeps a, a woman or a, or a, a man who's looking uh, after a child at home and not working. Absolutely. And uh, and so this is a market failure, you know, when when more than 50 percent of your workers uh, can't get to work because they don't they don't have the the social support system um, um, to make it possible. This is a labor market problem that the private sector ought to be concerned about as well. And you think about it, you know. If, if we have high GDP and we keep cutting uh, taxes for the rich and not making them pay their fair share, think about it, Ali. About 42 percent mm-hmm. of these stock buybacks are made by foreigners. Isn't You know, it doesn't even show up at your corner grocery store. Uh, let me ask you one quick question, then. You were in agreement on everything that we've talked about. Same question I had for Heather. What do you do now about the stuff that's not finished in this bill, that, that won't get finished in this bill, the things that we didn't quite do to make it uh, in line with our peers in, in other developed countries? When will that happen? Is there a likelihood that after a year or two of this, people say, hey, we like it. Let's do more. Well, you know, uh, listen, Nancy has said that paid, uh, paid family leave. Uh, is on life support, but it's not dead. She's still fighting for it. And I know that among my friends, I'm going to have to go into hiding if we don't get some fake family family leave. It's just that critical, Uh, particularly now. And it's not just for having babies, but taking care of elders, people who are in that sandwich generation. Um, As you said, every 
so-called uh, uh, rich country really provides a, a yep. paid family leave as a given. Uh, I appreciate the conversation with you, and I appreciate you uh, you monitoring how we speak about this, because the words on this do matter. Uh, as always, thank you for taking the time to talk to us and for getting us early on a Saturday morning for us. Democratic Representative Gwen Moore of Wisconsin. we got a full table of Velshi set for you this morning. We're going to dive further into Biden's big agenda at the top of the hour with California Representative Judy Chu, who was at the caucus leadership discussions at the White House this week. Plus, New York City's unvaccinated municipal workers, including firefighters and police officers, are protesting the city's vaccine mandate. I'll talk to the president of the union representing the FDNY after this. In states and cities across the country, the uh, courts appear to be siding with vaccine mandates. In Maine, the Supreme Court refused to block a vaccine mandate for healthcare workers who say it doesn't include a religious exemption. Similarly, a federal appellate court will now allow the state of New York to enforce a vaccine mandate on healthcare workers, lifting a temporary restraining order that was requested also for religious exemptions. The rulings come as New York's unvaccinated first responders continue to fight those vaccine mandates. This week, hundreds of FDNY firefighters took their objections to the mayor's mansion where they protested New York City's... Join MSNBC's Simone Sanders Townsend, Michael Steele, and Alicia Menendez as they team up to host The Weeknd. We want to get the newsmakers, the people that are in the middle of what is happening. It's about the conversation. A lot of Americans check out of conversations. We want to check them in. Conversation we begin and that you continue all week long. The Weeknd, Saturdays and Sundays at 8 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Mandate affecting 160,000 municipal workers. The deadline, which went into effect last night, requires all municipal workers, including firefighters and police officers, to show proof of at least one vaccine dose or face unpaid leave come Monday. Six FDNY members have been suspended for allegedly driving their fire truck while on duty to the office of a state senator. As of this morning, according to the latest city statistics, 72% of FDNY firefighters, 84% of the city's EMS workers, most of whom fall under the FDNY, and 84% of NYPD officers have received at least one COVID shot. And now, local news outlets are reporting that FDNY officials are accusing the union of staging illegal walkouts within the department. The shortage due to sick calls has resulted in the temporary shutdown of at least five, uh, 10 fire companies across the city. Joining us this morning is Andrew Ansbro. He's the president of the New York City Uniformed Firefighters Association. Mr. Ansbro, thank you for being with us this morning. You and I uh, are both vaccinated, but we we're on different sides of this issue. I feel very strongly that vaccine mandates work. You don't seem to. So I appreciate that knowing where we both stand on this, you've agreed to come and have this discussion with me this morning. We appreciate your time. I want to begin uh, with this. Listen, I, I don't I don't disagree that vaccine mandates work. If you force people to get a vaccine or lose their job, many of them are going to comply, but not everybody. And uh, we've been telling the mayor this, we've been telling the commissioners that not everyone will comply. And that's why we've asked for more time for this for this vaccine mandate or for, for the rules to be explained to our members. Got it. The, the okay. is still putting out information about what people what's going to happen to people's jobs as of last night before the deadline. Even I'm, I'm sorry, after the deadline, my members have not given an op- have been given a proper opportunity to be informed by the Department of the City what's going to happen to them. 
Okay. All right. This is good. I appreciate that. We're fighting for our members' jobs. Let's pursue this then. Let's start with the uh, what the FDNY is calling uh, a limited job action. Uh, Some people call it a sick out uh, and they're saying it'll adversely affect the work of the fire departments. You say that the firefighters are calling. So we're not disagreeing that there have been a lot of calls out sick in the last 24 hours. But you're I've seen reports that you say it's because I have not been informed of that by the department. I, uh, not I, I, I saw a comment where you said that there's people reacting to a vaccine. That's why they're they're out. Well, that was through the news. I was questioned oh, okay. by a reporter that there was a, an increase. The department has not reached out to me and, and explained that Got if it. the department had a problem with staffing. They should have reached out to me. Got it. So as far as as of now, the department has not reached out to you. Say, are you are you undertaking some sort of action? Reporters have. And you've said, no, there is no job action underway right now. There I, are just a I lot of firefighters. Never, out I sick. would never advocate for a job action that relates to firefighters not working. In the union halls, I've argued with members and I've told them to never leave the firehouse until you're relieved. I'm on record for that. I was a, I was a firefighter at home for 14 years. I know what it's like to be on that fire floor waiting for the next company to get there. This isn't just the lives of civilians, this is the lives of firefighters at sure. stake. I would never do that. It is scandalous that someone would accuse a New York City firefighter of doing that. Got it. Okay, thank you for that. Let's talk about uh, the rates of vaccination in in your group. You are vaccinated. You believe people should be vaccinated. You even believe that the mandates work, you're telling me. So what would you like to see happen differently? You're you're telling me there's some... Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win. Earlier here of communication between the fire department, the city and your members. What needs to happen to fix this to get more people vaccinated and not have Absolutely. them lose, leave their jobs? We are, we, are 20, we are 20 months into this pandemic. A little, not even a month ago, the mayor put us on a plan, all city workers other than the teachers, to get either tested or vaccinated once a week. After two weeks, the numbers of sick firefighters and other city employees was so low, the mayor went into his next step of forcing a mandate. As of today, the chances of dying from COVID in New York are one in a million. There are less than 10 fatalities a day. New York City has 80 heart attacks a day, 1,400 life-threatening medical injury, uh, life-threatening medical emergencies a day, 65 serious fires a day. To say that there is a COVID emergency in New York and everyone must be vaccinated right now goes against every single metric of New York City emergency service. We know where people are dying. They're dying in fires. They're dying with heart attacks. They're dying in car accidents. They're dying in overdoses. One in a million chance to die from COVID in New York City today. So well, but what, why, why, do, why are you name, then why are you why vaccinated? God's name why do you have a vaccine? People to make why, this decision get in a short amount of time is outrageous. But why did you correction, get one? New York City. Let me explain one thing. New York City Corrections was given 30 days to negotiate with the city. Yeah. Every other agency was given nine days. Okay. Why was corrections? So, so what do you? 30, I, I, why I hear your argument. Given 30 let, let me days? ask a question. Let me ask. Was given 30 days okay. because there is I got a it. staffing so, problem. Andrew, I, I got what I get. Your point. What is it you want? If what is it you want in order problem, to get? We should have 30 days. Okay, so you want 30 days. That would solve your problem. If you had 30 days to discuss this with your members, after which, if they don't get vaccinated, they could lose their jobs. You'd be okay with that. 
The city has still not told us the terms of this. We still have to negotiate with the city. No union other than the teachers has agreed to terms of anything. This is it's scandalous that people's careers are put on the line within nine days. Would you accept that in your profession? Uh, I, I would accept a vaccine mandate. Very I was, I was in a big hurry to get a, ma- a vaccine when I got it. So I'm the wrong guy to ask. But I, I guess I'm just trying to understand I got it as well, because because we have great respect for our firefighters across this country. And I, I would like them safe and I would like them vaccinated. Uh, so you believe that a, a longer period to discuss this in good in good faith would result in something that compels your members to get vaccinated. And you would not object to that if it were done the right way. So my members are already showing up to get vaccinated. There will always be holdouts. But the terms of what happens with the holdouts, you got a lot of holdouts. You got a lot of holdouts. Your holdouts are higher than than yes. other yes, other we, uh, yes, services. We, do. we also have we also have 70 percent of my members have already been sick. Many of them feel that this vaccination is not necessary at this time. Up until a few days ago, the CDC had on their website that 90 days post infection was an adequate amount of time before you get your your vaccination. We're asking for the 90 days. We're asking for things that they agreed to days or weeks ago that they've now taken away. We would love to have the vaccine or test policy in place because as I said, I'm vaccinated. My wife's vaccinated. She got COVID and then I got COVID. So telling me that if you're vaccinated, you're protecting people from COVID that's not what we're saying. It's that's not the argument. Sp- you're, 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 being, you're being protected from from serious hospitalization and death. That's the argument. I, I People, agree. Right. I agree. So, and it's the same protection. It's the same protection afforded if you're having a secondary infection as well. So we're I want to ask any you of our members with a secondary infection that's causing a hospitalization. So you've got you've got a, a number of things that sound like valid arguments about an appropriate they amount are. of time to discuss this and an appropriate amount of time if you've been infected with covid to then get your vaccination. In that case, if your concerns are met, you would support a mandate for your your employees, for your workers. For your I'm, not so, I'm not so sure I would. Uh, every incentive that's been given to uh, the city employees has been denied us. Our members were denied time uh, off that other employees got for getting the vaccination. They failed to give it to us. So okay, but if you I got, if you got all those, I'm trying to get you to point. Mandate, I'm trying I'm to get so you to sure yes. I would. Andrew, I'm trying to get you to yes. Is there any circumstance in the world where you would agree that your men, your members should be vaccinated? Yes. Okay. If a member has the vaccine or test policy, if he has the option to test, that is the only way I would agree to anything. Andrew, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. You're welcome. Andrew Asbro is the president of the FDNY Uniformed Fighters, uh, Firefighters Association of Greater New York. There's new reporting out this morning on what Donald Trump is trying to keep from investigators. We'll have that next. This morning, Politico has new details about what Donald Trump and his team are specifically trying to keep out of the January 6th committee's hands. Among the 750 pages of documents that Trump's team is trying to block are speech drafts, handwritten notes and files that belong to some top aides, including binders of 2020 election talking points from former press secretary Kayleigh McEnany. They're also trying to prevent the committee from accessing call logs, which have been of great interest for months. In a brief filed yesterday, the House Select Committee said, quote, Mr. Trump is, as of now, a case of one. He is, as of now, the only failed presidential candidate not to concede, to spend months spreading lies about the election, to encourage a self-coup that would illegally keep him in office or to inspire a mob to attack the Capitol. There is no more important, no one more important to study to determine how legislation can prevent the repetition of such a, such acts. 
Joining me now is Joyce Vance. She's a former United States attorney in Alabama and an MSNBC contributor. Joyce, good morning to you. Does the Trump camp really have the ability to suppress such a broad scope of documents? Or are they just doing this because this is what they do? We'll find out on Thursday or shortly thereafter when the judge holds a hearing on this matter. But I don't think there's any ability, maybe a very limited one here, for the former president to succeed. There are briefs filed overnight by both National Archives and the January 6th committee, and they make a really compelling case that once Joe Biden has balanced the equities and has spoken for the presidency, that there's little reason to let the former president intervene. But it's the power of that quote that you read that I think brings the case home. This is singular. And and now we have members of our government saying the January 6th events, it's not like any other release of presidential records or former presidential records. This is an event that has to be studied if Congress is going to be able to prevent a reoccurrence. The, um, the, the Judge Beryl Howell uh, was discussing the, the way in which different January 6th prosecutions have gone, particularly for people who have been charged with smaller offenses. Um, why, she asked, when prosecutors called the riot an attack on democracy unparalleled in American history, were Griffith and other participants facing the same charge as nonviolent protesters who routinely disrupt congressional hearings? It seems like a bit of a disconnect, Howell said, a muddled, uh, muddled and almost schizophrenic. What's your sense of, of how different people who have been charged are being offered deals and 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 uh, and and penalized. Well, first, I think it's important to note that Judge Howell spent two terms on the United States Sentencing Commission uh, as a commissioner, and she's very conversant with the different levels of crime and how sentencing works. So she's perhaps the most attuned person in the entire federal judiciary on these issues. But that said, these sentencing decisions that prosecutors are making right now really do. She's correct. They tend towards the bottom of the sentencing hierarchy. The reason that that may be important down the road is that it leaves room for prosecutors to continue to charge more significant crimes and to ask for larger sentences as they move up the chain of responsibility for January 6th. So while some people see this as a sign that DOJ is weak, I confess I've begun to um, develop a little bit of cautious optimism that this means that DOJ is doing what it does in every case involving a conspiracy, albeit on a very large scale here. They are moving up the chain from the least complicit to the most, and we will see uh, more stringent charges and sentences as this case develops. Joyce, thank you as always for your analysis. Joyce Vance is a former U.S. attorney in Alabama. She is an MSNBC contributor and the co-host of the Sisters in Law podcast. Thanks as always, Joyce. Well, coming up, we're about to be one major step closer to ending the COVID-19 pandemic with news breaking late yesterday about vaccinating kids against the deadly disease. Well, after months of waiting this morning, we're a step closer to being able to vaccinate young children. On Friday, the Food and Drug Administration authorized the Pfizer vaccine for emergency use in kids age 5 to 11. That sets the stage for about 28 million kids in America to get vaccinated. Now, the new dose for children is expected to be a third of the size that's given to Americans 12 and older. 10 micrograms of mRNA will be given compared to 30 micrograms. The CDC is expected to weigh in on the approval in a few days. The CDC's got to sign off on it first. But if it does, we could see child doses going into arms by the end of next week. 
Uh, Coming up next, the American tax code, paying a fair share and the true meaning of progress. Long before the word progressive became as politically loaded as it is today, policymakers and economists agreed that a progressive tax system is the way to go in America. The word progressive in the context of tax policy only means that the government imposes a higher percentage rate on taxpayers who make more money. This is not terribly controversial, and it's widely accepted across the political spectrum. As our friends at Investopedia put it, a progressive tax system reduces the tax burden on the people who can least afford to pay. That leaves more money in the pockets of low-wage earners who, in, uh, who are they're more likely to spend that money on essential goods and stimulate the economy in the process. A progressive tax system is what we're talking about here because when you give a low-income earner a dollar, they typically must use that dollar on essentials at grocery stores, retail shops, small businesses, doctor's visits. All of it goes directly back into our economy and has a multiplier effect by creating jobs and generating tax locally. Basically, it pays for itself nicely. That is what the taxation system in the United States is supposed to be following. But you wouldn't know that given the lengths that some of our lawmakers go to protect the investment accounts of America's ultra rich. And it's particularly relevant right now because of President Biden's social spending plan. If passed, it will cost $1.75 trillion to overhaul America's health care, child care, education and climate systems. So the next obvious question is where will that money to pay for it come from? One idea that's been tossed around is a billionaire tax. Here's how it would work. The ultra-rich generate a lot of their wealth, not from normal income, like a wage, but from assets, like stocks. They make their money from money they already have. But as the tax code stands right now, the wealthy do not pay taxes on those investments unless they sell them. So the proposal, and all that it is right now is a proposal, would apply those uh, apply to those who have more than a billion dollars in assets for three consecutive years or anyone earning more than a hundred million dollars in annual income. It's not a whole lot of people. This idea is not going over well with conservatives in Congress who say that it's unfair to those poor billionaires who have contributed so much to our economy. And it always fascinates me. How quickly we are to rush to the aid of the privileged and the wealthy while we twist ourselves into pretzels to make sure that we don't adequately fund health care, child care, food stamps and housing. Because poor people are lazy and rich people are to be rewarded for being smart enough to be rich, apparently. But before I stray too far into opinion, let me actually show you some math. What you see here is a representation of Americans living in poverty. There are 370 small people on this wall, 370 of them. But each little person represents 100,000 real people living in poverty. What if millions of black Americans had been compensated for slavery? Join me, Tremaine Lee, as I explore the untold story of one of the only black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. All episodes available now. Poverty. That wall represents 37 million people living in poverty in arguably the richest country in the world, according to the latest census data. The proposed billionaire tax, here's how many people it would affect. Using the scale I've chosen, it's not even one full person. It's a tenth of a person in comparison to all of those living in poverty. The billionaire tax would apply 
to roughly 700 taxpayers in the United States. Increasing taxes marginally on about 700 of the richest people in America, each worth more than a billion dollars or who earn more than $100 million a year, would create transformational change for millions. Let's look at it this way. Median American household wealth is about $700,000. That means half of all households are worth more and half are worth less. We're talking about levying an increased tax on people whose wealth is 1,420 times more than the median. And yet every day, workers see their hard-earned income being funneled out of their paychecks and into the government. There's no way around that for wage-earning Americans. Our system of taxation doesn't just like the rich, it specifically favors the way the rich get richer off of their assets versus the way regular people earn a paycheck for the work that they do. That is how we have created a nation of massive wealth inequality. A tax on the ultra-wealthy is not a punishment. It is fairness. If you want to see who gets penalized by the system, it's America's workers and a tax system that very deliberately helps keep that inequality in place. The resistance to a wealth tax is proof. Why tax the billionaires when we can just hold back on actual necessary life-affirming spending for those who actually need it? Why choose need over greed? America's tax system is supposed to be progressive, but it really isn't. If you do not fairly tax the rich because of the way in which they make money differently than the poor do, you are literally ensuring that our massive inequality will continue to grow. And that is the opposite of progressive. 2021 has been a rough year for abortion rights activists. State legislatures have passed a record number of anti-abortion bills since January, including a near total ban in Texas. As we've seen in the past couple of months, though, restrictive laws like that don't actually stop abortions. According to a new research, uh, new research out of the University of Texas, quote, the number of legal abortions performed in Texas dropped 50 percent from the same month in Texas. But many Texans have crossed state lines for abortion care, and that's overwhelming clinics in neighboring states. A new study by the Guttmacher Institute takes that scenario a few steps further and shows how overturning Roe v. Wade could severely limit abortion access for millions of women across the country because many states remain hostile to abortion rights. Look at this map. Guttmacher predicts that up to 26 states are certain or likely to swiftly ban abortion if Roe is ever overturned, affecting upward of 36 million women of reproductive age and making it a lot more difficult and expensive to access abortion care. Elizabeth Nash is the principal policy associate of state issues for the Guttmacher Institute. She has spent many years examining how state legislators, uh, legislatures have imposed restrictions on abortion rights. And she's one of the analysts who put together a new study that looks how abortion access could be limited in post-Roe America. Elizabeth, thank you for joining me again. Good morning to you. The last time you were here, we spoke about the so-called trigger laws and how some states have been preparing in case Roe is someday overturned. And the new map that uh, I just showed our viewers, I'll show them again. And that study takes the idea further. What factored into this map, this list of 26 states that are likely to ban abortion and under what circumstance would that happen? Sure. Thank you so much for having me again and showcasing this research. What we did was we thought about what states already have in their policies to ban abortion. So some states have laws, those trigger bans, right, that ban abortion if rows overturned. Some states have passed 
near total or early abortion bans, like six-week bans or eight-week bans. And some states have rolled back abortion rights in their constitutions. So we really, and some states have pre-row abortion bans that they never repeal that have been on the books for 100 years. So we took those states. And then we added in a few states that have been very active on abortion recently. And given that push, if abortion rights are overturned by the Supreme Court, we thought they would also quickly move to ban abortion. And we came up with sort of this stunning number of 26 states. That's huge. And it's across the country, right? It's the South, it's the Plains, it's the Midwest. So should these states ultimately have the opportunity and ban abortion, you're talking about vast distances for people to travel in order to access care. And looking at this map, you can you can see the Gulf states, um, the Gulf of Mexico states. Uh, you, you predict the entire Gulf region will gut abortion rights if or when they get the chance. Some people in that area will have to cross multiple state lines just to get to the nearest abortion clinic. Think about Florida, Atlanta, Florida, Georgia, uh, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana. In all of those cases, you got to get past uh, another state, at least in between. As we've seen with Texas, people are going to go elsewhere. So what happens as a result of that? Who bears the brunt of, of these uh, shutdowns on abortions? Well, we know, right, that the wealthy people will be able to navigate this much more easily than people who have low incomes, people of color, people have been systematically oppressed, people of color, young people, LGBTQ individuals in particular. And, you know, the kinds of barriers that they are facing are really all of these, this navigation and these logistics, right? An average abortion costs about $550. When you start adding in, like a round trip from Louisiana to Illinois might be 1,300 miles. That is a huge distance. And that means you would be taking days away from your family and your work. Um, You would need to pay for that travel. Um, This is just a huge and perhaps insurmountable burden for people to bear, especially when people have children and have to arrange for childcare. What's the alternative? What happens? This whole map, uh, part of it is the is, is these added hardships that you just disclosed that Americans will face in accessing safe and legal abortion, travel, practical issues, traveling across state lines for those who just can't do it. The, the 500 plus the, the 1300 miles, the gas tank, the time off work, the accommodation at hotels or motels, uh, the danger that you might need extra care for a day or two and, and you have to lo- miss work. What ends up happening to those people if, if they just don't have that money? We have evidence that there are lots of Americans who just don't have that kind of money. Right. Well, you know, what we are seeing right now in Texas are the providers, the abortion funds, the practical support organizations moving really heaven and earth to make care as accessible as possible. And that is the kind of effort we would need across the country should this happen. Other people, you know, may look to um, obtain an abortion through the internet, right? Or, but some people will be able to travel, although a number won't. And some people will have continue pregnancies that they weren't intending on having. 
Elizabeth, thanks as always for joining us and giving us great clarity on a very, very complicated issue that's about to become a lot more complicated for many Americans. Elizabeth Nash is the Principal Policy Associate of State Issues at the Guttmacher Institute. Thanks again for your research into this. Don't go anywhere. We're just getting started this Saturday morning. Straight ahead, Representative Judy Chu helps break down where things stand with President Biden's agenda. Another hour of Velshi begins right now. Hi, good morning. It's 9 a.m. in the east, 6 a.m. out west. I'm Ali Velshi. We find ourselves this weekend in the midst of a major breakthrough on President Biden's sweeping plan to shore up the country's investments into our human infrastructure. There is much we stand to gain from the hard-fought compromise that the president announced this week. But there is also much that we stand to lose in opportunity costs because the plan has been cut in half in order to reach this compromise. Now, as the Democrats try to push this bill over the finish line, let's look at what's in and what's out. Let's start with what is still in the bill. You've got billions of dollars for universal pre-K, for elder home care, a child tax credit that's been extended into 2022, clean energy tax credits, expanded health care coverage, $130 billion for that, expanded Medicare for hearing services. Uh, we've got affordable housing and immigration reform funding. That's all the stuff that is still in. And this stuff is transformational, especially when it comes to the funds going toward clean energy and investments, climate investments. It'll be the largest clean energy investment in U.S. history with billions going toward clean energy tax credits, resilient investments and incentives for small businesses to avoid fossil fuels. Another transformation program is this. It is the $400 billion going toward child care. If Democrats actually manage to get this bill passed, that could finally put us on par with other developed countries. Let's give you a sense of how much America spends on child care compared to other countries. Norway is at the top of this list. See that? That's Norway, about $29,000, $30,000 per child. Iceland and Finland come in next. Denmark, they all spend more than $20,000 per child. Before this bill, the United States spends five hundred dollars per child uh, per annum. That's what the problem is. All right. There's a lot of good in this bill. A lot of popular programs got cut as well, including paid family leave, free community college, expanded Medicare coverage for dental and vision and prescription drugs. The AARP furious about that last one. So this is the opportunity cost. America is missing a rare chance to catch up to how other developed nations treat their citizens. Take parental leave, for example. As Bloomberg News puts it, only six countries are as stingy in the, as the United States about paid maternity leave. Those other countries are the Marshall Islands, the Federated State of Micronesia, Nauru, pa- Palau, Papua New Guinea, and Tonga. I'm not making this up. Most other developed and developing countries have at least some form of paid parental leave guaranteed. It is not guaranteed for anybody in America. You may get it through your employer. You have certain so-called moderates saying the richest country in the world cannot afford to do more for its citizens. But at this point, America can't really afford not to do more for its citizens. And when it comes to how much other countries spend on social benefits like services for disability, employment and tax credits, the United States remains far behind. According to the latest available data, this is from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. You'll know that as the OECD. It's the Organization of Developed Countries. France spent about 31% of its GDP on social services for its citizens. Finland, 29%. Belgium, 28.9%. The United States, 18.7%. 
For all you people worried about the fact that we're slipping into a socialist country, we're not even close. So, yes, although President Biden's Build Back Better plan has been scaled down, it's still big. It's potentially transformational for the country. But most reasonable people would agree that America still has a very long way to go. People like me worry that this was our best chance. We're still in the midst of a pandemic that pushed millions of people off of a financial cliff, many of whom still haven't recovered. And the temporary government assistance that was helping them survive has largely dried up. If there was ever a moment for America to prove that it is the modern country that it says it is, now is that moment. The opportunity cost of missing this chance to go big and to enact robust social programs to actually bring America closer to that more perfect union could far outweigh the dollar amount that some in Washington cannot seem to wrap their head around. Joining me now is the Democratic Congresswoman Judy Chu of California. She's a member of the House Ways and Means and Small Business Committee. She's also the chair of the Congressional Asian Pacific uh, Caucus. And she was at the caucus leadership discussions at the White House this week. And on one hand, Congresswoman, I'm, I congratulate you all for coming to a, a, a deal. And I accept that it's transformational and it's big. I worry about what's next. How do we get to those things that still do not keep America on par with other other peer nations in the world? Well, I thank you for sharing that analysis because, yes, we are lagging behind so many countries around the world. Uh, We are the only developed country in the world that does not have a national paid family leave program. So we are still actually pushing for that. And in fact, I am one of the 12 leaders on paid family leave in the House that just sent a letter to leadership saying we need to have this included. Nonetheless, let me say that on Thursday, we took a great step forward towards making the Build Back Better bill a reality. President Biden came to our caucus. We heard from him. He outlined his vision for transforming the lives of so many Americans in this country who would finally get universal pre-K as well as childcare, where we would finally get elder care, that is home care for those who are uh, disabled and and need that care at home to survive. Uh, There are so many incredible things in this bill. And the other great step forward is that we in the Congressional Progressive Caucus voted to endorse this Build Back Better bill, which means that the votes on the progressive side are there for this bill. And we believe that it could be voted on and passed through even within the next week. And that's important to note because the Progressive uh, Caucus is the biggest caucus of, of any um, in Congress. I want to I, I talked a little bit about uh, the billionaire tax proposal earlier, and I want to just talk a little bit more about the distribution of wealth. This is from the United States Federal Reserve. Um, as of the second quarter of this year, the top one percent of Americans by income had an aggregate net worth of thirty six point two trillion dollars. That is a greater aggregate net worth than the middle 60 percent of the population. That's thirty five point seven trillion. Uh, trillion dollars. At some point, we've got to decide that we are people who understand that we have a weirdly uneven uh, distribution of wealth equality in this country, more than other developed countries. America, uh, it's not the worst in the world, but it's it's certainly not the best in the world. We do have to think about fundamentally changing that. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. I do not like attacks on the wealthy. I do not think we should be calling them names. I think we should be encouraging people to get wealthy. But if you make your money off of money in this country, it's very different than if you make your money off of a wage. 
Exactly. Well, let's look at the situation. 55 of the biggest corporations in this country paid zero dollars in federal income taxes last year, despite making $40 billion in profits, and the wealthiest billionaires paid almost nothing. So the Build Back Better bill does make sure that they pay their fair share, that they at least do what they're supposed to do in providing the tax relief that should make this a a more uh, equitable country where everybody can have a chance. So yes, we do have the corporate minimum tax in this. We have stock buyback taxes in this. We have the corporate international reform uh, to stop having companies ship jobs overseas. There are a number of measures in the current Build Back Better bill that would actually even the playing field in terms of those who are making profits in this country. Let me ask you, because you've, you've seen this for a while, uh, there are programs that didn't make it in or may not make it in by the end of the negotiations, and, and you and others are not letting perfect be the enemy of the good. What do you do about those things where we're not yet up to par with other countries? What's your hope as to how this unfolds uh, and that, with, that some of these things that didn't make the cut somehow make it back into legislation over the next coming years? Well, for one thing, we are still not giving up. Uh, I know that there's an active effort by uh, Senator Christian Gillibrand to get paid family leave back in. That's why we, the leaders on paid family leave in the House, are still pushing. But I do have to say that we will not give up. Uh, We will continue to push for free community college tuition for paid family leave. And what was really encouraging is that President Biden said that he was committed to making sure that these programs still continue to be worked on. He's committed his full power to ensure that. But he said that everybody had to give up something for this bill. There were things that so many people wanted. Uh, We had to just make sure that we do the things that we all agreed upon, which we will make sure transforms America for uh, all. And so, yes, uh, we do still want to have more for Medicare, the vision and the dental. Actually, there is still negotiation on the prescription drug issue. So um, there is more negotiation that is going on. I'm just hopeful that we can get the paid family leave, the prescription drug relief that we need, uh, and that we can ensure even greater relief for Americans across this country. Congressman, good to see you. Thank you for joining us this morning. Democratic Congressman Judy Chu of California. Joining us now is Anand Girdadas. He's the publisher of The Inc. He's also the author of Winners Take All, the elite charade of changing the world. Anand, uh, thank you for joining us. This, this, You know my view on this. This may have been uh, a very big missed opportunity to achieve some spectacular change with regard to the way we, we spend money in this country with respect to uh, the inequality that we've got in this country. What's your take on it? I think it's very important, as you did so beautifully at the opening, to set the stakes for what what we what this w- was about or could be about. Um, and I, I would put that on two levels. First, we are in an, an acute crisis of COVID, the economic crisis unleashed by COVID, and so there was an immediate need to help people, simply help people in a hurting country. But I think 
at a deeper level, this has not been a two-year story. This has been a 40-year story. And that's what some of the numbers you were pointing to um, illustrate. And the 40-year story is this country has been sliding into plutocracy. It's not about the fact that we have people with a lot of money. It's about those people with a lot of money have been buying political power with that money over the last 40 years and owning the society. And so if you drive a bus in Arizona or you are a farmer in Iowa or you are a teacher in Long Island, you increasingly don't live in a democracy in which you have an equal voice. You live in the billionaire's country. And so the stake, well, this, the stakes of this whole Build Back Better conversation have, have been, was the president and Congress going to deliver help for people? Yes. But were they going to actually deliver against ending the age of plutocracy? Yeah. And that's where that kind of having of the program um, starts to starts to say, yeah, there's there's going to be help. But it, I so, think it becomes harder to see how we're going to truly end. Um, let, let's see, you, you're right in making this a 40 year problem. Let's go back to uh, the early 80s. Um, we broke the the air traffic controller strike, which basically started the, the beginning of the it was the beginning of the end for unions, which we're actually starting to see a resurgence of for the first time now in, in 40 years. 40 years ago is when wages started to separate. Right. Everybody's wages were moving in a similar fashion. About 40 years ago is where regular people's wages got stuck. Median wages got stuck. The, the wages of the top five percent do much better and the top one percent are, are astronomical. The world changed 40 years ago. 40 years ago, everybody was getting getting a relatively fair shake in America. And we have moved away from that. And for some reason, we've decided to be in a world where we reward great wealth and wealth that begets wealth. I don't think you or I are either against wealth, but we we've got a perverse system that actually needed fundamental change. And I think when you lay it out that way, the, the year that we've been living through is actually even more remarkable in that context. And the question for 2021 was, was it going to be the bookend? to 1981. And there's a powerful symmetry to this year and this era. Joe Biden voted for some of the 1981 Reagan tax and government cuts that in a way launched this era as a matter of policy. And 40 years later, Joe Biden, a historic moderate, came into office and got into an improbable coalition with progressives who had fought him in the election, who had lost the election, but who in many ways were winning the war of ideas. And this year has been defined in my analysis by a historically moderate president who actually had a capacity to evolve and grow and, and hear some of the data you're talking about, hear a changing conversation. And progressives who had fought that president tooth and nail mm -hmm. and have actually had his back through this process have actually been the real protectors of his double-barreled agenda. And the surprise of this year has been the people traditionally closest to Joe Biden politically in Congress have hamstrung him mm -hmm. at every turn, have been the people trying to sabotage his agenda at every turn. The people who are, the, in a way, the heroes of trying to get something done this year are the people who understand coalition. And that's, I would say, Joe Biden. I would say that's Ron Klain, for sure, in the White House. I would say that's Pramila Jayapal. I would say that's AOC. That's Bernie. People who tried to figure out how a big tent could get big things yep. done. And, and the tragedy, tragic disappointments of this year are the political sadists and crony opportunists in Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, who at every turn have chosen power and money over helping people. I am a writer. I'm not a licensed 
clinician. I can't diagnose what's going on with mansion and cinema. I can't prescribe remedies, but I do know there are therapies available out there for people who derive pleasure from hurting millions of people. There's some strange bedfellows this year, um, and you, you, uh, you illustrate that very well. Anand, good to see you as always. Thank you for joining us. Anand Girdadas, whom you will see from time to time uh, when I'm not here uh, as the host of this show. He's the publisher of The Ink and author of Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of, the change, of Changing the World. All right, it's almost Halloween. It's Halloween weekend. Thanks to the former administration, we got some scares in store, including new reporting that Trump lawyers apparently told Mike Pence's team to say that he was to blame for the January 6th insurrection. Plus, Mark Zuckerberg tries to distract from the depravity of his company with a name change. We're not getting sidetracked on Velshi by a little rebranding. And we're seeing supremely tight races uh, for governor in Virginia and New Jersey. Virginia is much closer than anyone anticipated. This is Velshi on MSNBC. In just three days, voters in Virginia will head to the polls to cast ballots for their next governor. Democrat Terry McAuliffe and Republican Glenn Youngkin have been hitting the campaign trail hard, crisscrossing the state and making their final pitches to voters. Now, recent polling numbers show that race is really tight right now, much closer than expected. The results of this election are generally seen as a reflection of how the current administration is doing, and it's a potential bellwether for what's to come in next year's national midterms. Let's go to my friend and colleague, Chris Jansing. She's outside of polling place in Loudoun County, Virginia, on what is the last day of early voting in the state. Good morning, my friend. How close is this race and what are the candidates doing to try and bring it home for for themselves? A statistical dead heat. This is incredibly close. In fact, there are a couple new polls out yesterday. Uh, Most of the polls over the last couple of weeks have been within the margin of error. And when you look at the average, according to 538, less than one percentage point is the difference between these two candidates, which is why what's happening behind me is significant. We can show you we are required to stay a distance from the polls, but you can see the long line. There were probably 40 or 50 people waiting already when the doors opened at nine o'clock this morning. A lot more have come. The parking lot is pretty full. More than a million people across Virginia have early voted. We're coming up on 50,000 here in Loudoun County. Here's why that's important for Terry McAuliffe. He needs to really bring up the numbers in suburban places like this, where the current governor, Ralph Northam, did well, where Joe Biden did incredibly well. If he is going to offset what has been this move by Glenn Youngkin, both of the candidates out in force today. We have 19 stops for Terry McAuliffe, five on a continuing bus tour for Youngkin, all looking, as you pointed out, and VP Harris said this last night at an apparent at an appearance, this is going to be a signal of where this nation is going. Allie. We're going to watch it closely with you, Chris. Thank you, as always, my friend Chris Jansing in Leesburg, Virginia. As the rioters were storming the Capitol on January 6th, Donald Trump's legal team was reportedly already placing the blame on someone else. Can you guess who? After the break. A new Washington Post report is shedding more light on the role that Trump attorney John Eastman played on January 6th. We already know that Eastman wrote a two-page memo that outlined how then-Vice President Mike Pence could overturn the Electoral College count that day. And now, in a story published last night by the Washington Post, uh, angry crowds apparently mobbed the Capitol. As the angry crowds mobbed the Capitol, Eastman emailed a top Pence aide to, quote, say that Pence had caused the violence by refusing to block the certification of Trump's election loss and, quote, press for Pence to ask uh, to act even after Trump supporters had trampled through the Capitol. 
Now, NBC News has not independently seen this email. The Washington Post has confirmed it with Eastman, who says that he was not trying to place the blame for the violent events of that day on Mike Pence. Eastman's name has been floating around in recent weeks as he remains a high priority for the January 6th committee, which is expected to subpoena him next week. Joining me now is Carol Lenning, a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter for The Washington Post. She's an MSNBC contributor and a co-author of several major books, including A Very Stable Genius, Donald J. Trump's Testing of America, and I Alone Can Fix It, Donald J. Trump's Catastrophic Final Year. Carol, good morning to you. Uh, this reporting uh, from your Washington Post colleagues uh, is is a the, the upside down pineapple cake of blame. Uh, it, but it started then. It was still on January 6th. They were sort of saying, hey, if, if you had actually just done what you were supposed to do, Mike Pence, and overturned the election like we told you to, none of this rioting, protest, uh, deadly uh, uh, storming of the Capitol would have happened. You're absolutely right about that, Allie, about the upside down nature of this. I mean, and remember how beautifully you began by setting this scene. There is a marauding band of people pouring into windows and doors of the Capitol. They are carrying weapons and they are calling for Mike Pence's head. They are calling for his execution. He is in hiding and he receives or rather, I should say, his his counsel Who's, who's alongside him, receives an email from the, the president's lawyer, John Eastman, saying this is you and your boss's fault uh, for failing to let the public, and I'm paraphrasing here, for failing to let the public see this and air this dispute. It's a, a as Jacob puts it, who's the, uh, Greg Jacob, the counsel who received this email, puts it, it was sort of a shocking lack of awareness of the danger that the vice president was in at that moment. It wasn't the time to quibble over the legal viability of um, Trump's lawyers' arguments about whether or not Pence could stop the certification of the election. It's a really a frightening moment, an interesting time to send such an email. The other thing that's going on right now is we're seeing a number of prosecutions of people who were charged on January 6th. And uh, there's a judge, Beryl Howell, uh, the chief federal judge in D.C., who's calling uh, some of these prosecutions and the sentences schizophrenic. Uh, the the idea that the rioters, she says, are not mere protesters. Uh, give me some sense of this and, and how the public is supposed to regard these prosecutions. Some of uh, these people are getting off with very, very light sentences, slaps on the wrists, one would say. You know, the chief judge in one of the most powerful courts in the country, Washington, D.C.'s federal court, Beryl Howell, has basically slammed the Department of Justice as of yesterday, saying that what in the world is going on with these charges? You're charging people who were violent uh, rioters as trespassers with a misdemeanor um, charge that essentially we would give someone who shouted out in a congressional hearing and disrupted it. That is not what happened here, Judge Howell is saying. This was, you know, according to the Department of Justice, the crime of the century. And yet her view is you're giving them a slap on the wrist. You're treating this as as sort of a sidewalk infraction. Uh, and, And what is interesting about this is the prosecutor's answer, which is that they feel they're walking in uncharted territory. They're not sure how to exactly handle this. But the truth is they are not being as aggressive as they have been in the past with people who have taken violent steps, disobeyed police, crossed police lines, shoved police. These are essentially could be argued to be assault each one of them. And 
Judge Judge Howell is really taking issue with this. It's an interesting moment, Allie, because prosecutors really decide how to charge and the judges typically just listen, right? Yeah. Okay, well, I'll take your information. Here she's like, I'm not listening. I'm kind of fed up with this. Carol, good to see you this morning. Thank you for joining us. As always, Carol Lennig is a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter for The Washington Post and co-author of the books A Very Stable Genius and I Alone Can Fix It and Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service. Well, if big oil is watching this, maybe this, a species that is already extinct will make an impression because Congress didn't seem to. Listen up, people. You're headed for a climate disaster. And yet every year, governments spend hundreds of billions of public funds on fossil fuel subsidies. Imagine if we had spent hundreds of billions per year subsidizing giant meteors. That's what you're doing right now. Around the world, people are living in poverty. Don't you think helping them would make more sense than, I don't know, paying for the demise of your entire species? You could call it a crude awakening. Oil executives from Exxon, BP, Shell and Chevron faced the ire of Democratic lawmakers on the Hill this week. The hearing marked the first time that the despots of diesel were directly questioned under oath, I might add, on the company's collective role in misleading the public on the causes of climate change. Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, House Oversight Committee chairwoman, had major expectations for the hearing. For far too long, Big Oil has escaped accountability for its central role in bringing our planet to the brink of a climate catastrophe. That ends today. Big Oil has known the truth about climate change for decades. True to their form, as slippery as an oil slick, the executives largely avoided the climate change allegations, instead emphasizing their support of the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement, something you may recall is not enforceable and does not require oil companies to actually lower em- emissions. And true to their form, Republican members of the committee defended the companies, calling the hearing theater, a distraction, and un-American. But in truth, the oil giants don't need uh, GOP defenders because they're doing great all on their own. Business is booming for big oil. Exxon and Chevron both reported their most profitable quarter uh, quarterly earnings since before the uh, onset of the pandemic just this week. As the saying goes, money talks. So if these companies ever felt a desire to diversify into renewable energy, they certainly don't now. This is billions upon billions of dollars drilling right into the Earth's crust sooner or later. This should be a call to action for Americans, and I don't mean keeping up with your recycling and carpooling when you can. While those things are crucial, they alone are not enough to stop climate change. It's time to stop blaming individuals and start holding the fossil fuel industry accountable for the major part that they have played in destroying our planet. Bringing these companies to task is the only shot we've got in saving this planet. All right. Staying in Washington, we've seen some major provisions to Biden's Build Back Better plan, including Medicare expansion, universal pre-care and affordable housing. But a lot of key elements are on the cutting room floor, including free college, uh, prescription drug prices and paid family leave. Two key congressional delegates are joining the cross connection to discuss the fate of the bill. Tiffany joins me now with more. Good morning, my friend. 
Good morning, Allie. First of all, I love your reads before I come join you. You're always thank so you. insightful. So thank you for that. And you're right. I'll be joined by the Congressional Black Caucus Chair, Congresswoman Joyce Beatty and Congressman Jimmy Gomez. I want to know uh, what voters are saying about the bill, because ultimately that's who they will have to sell this legislation to. There's a lot of great policies that made it into the bill that will help the rising majority. Um, so we acknowledge that. But we do want to talk about things like immigration. Is that going to survive the final version, lowering the price of prescription drugs, which is on the chopping block right now and other popular proposals that were left out. So we'll get into that and more. I'll also talk sports, Allie. You know, I fancy myself a sports enthusiast, even though I can never quite sit through a sports game. But I'll be joined by uh, journalist Carrie Champion, uh, and we'll talk about the World Series and the growing outcry over the Atlanta Braves tomahawk chop. I grew up there, so I know that's a, yep. uh, a very controversial sub subject. And we're going to talk about the Nike star taking on China and Nike, um, the NBA star, excuse me. So um, also, Allie, do you remember Clovenjane Wallace. She was the nine-year-old yep. Oscar nominee who won America's Hearts. Well, she is no longer a little girl. She's a teenager now, and she's going to join me to talk about her new series, Swagger, uh, which really is loosely based on Kevin Durant's life. So we've got a very busy, jam-packed show all coming up next, Allie, on The Cross Connection. As always, I will be uh, watching it very closely. Tiffany, good to see you, my friend. Uh, st uh, stay tuned for uh, The Cross Connection right after Velshi. It starts at 10 a.m. Eastern. Well, no one, uh, Mark, uh, no one told Mark Zuckerberg that you cannot run from your problems or rebrand from them. Meta still has a major Facebook problem. It seems every week there's new stuff about uh, Facebook. According to recent Washington Post reporting, Facebook was running regular studies on its users in order to find out uh, how coronavirus lies spread on its app. But in many cases, Facebook officials lied about their internal research or failed to tell policymakers about it. What's now being called the Facebook Papers also revealed that Facebook knew Instagram was unsafe for teenagers and raised questions about the company's role in allowing the spread of hate speech and anti-vax misinformation. The actions of Facebook Facebook are drawing comparisons to the early days of the big tobacco industry. Cigarette companies used to say smoking was good for you. We now know that tobacco is a poison and the leading cause of cancer and other disease. Amid the Facebook firestorm, there's been a demand for change by lawmakers, by regulators and by the public. And well, Mark Zuckerberg is apparently listening. Facebook hears you. And it made that change. It changed its name. Facebook's company name will now be Meta. According to Facebook, quote, the metaverse will feel like a hybrid of today's online social experiences, sometimes expanded into three dimensions or projected into the physical world, whatever that means. The idea is to fuse social media with virtual reality and augmented reality spaces. So Zuckerberg essentially wants to create an alternate lifestyle, a digital reality, without addressing this underlying mess, the spread of lies, the uptick in hate and violence that Facebook helped stir up right here on planet Earth. As Vice News puts it, quote, Facebook's new name is Meta. And its new mission is to invent a metaverse that will make us all forget what it's done to our existing reality. Joining me now is NBC News senior reporter Brandy Zadrozny. Also here, Nina Jankowicz, a disinformation fellow at the Wilson Center and the author of How to Lose the Information War. Good morning to both of you, Brandy. Facebook's got a new company name, um, but real change doesn't seem to be afoot a with the main problem that you and Nina have been talking about for years. And that is the continued spread of disinformation, which, by the way, Seems to be solvable, but most of this disinformation that, that you have reported on comes from a relatively limited number of users. It starts with a l relatively limited number of users, and it does seem that Facebook is able to identify it. Yeah, I mean, we, we have the same papers. We've been looking through them, too, and I think that that, is, that has been one of the takeaways that's so... 
I don't know, striking is that, you know, the Facebook's problems really do lie within a few power users, right, who take advantage of the core problem of Facebook, which isn't actually lies. It's, you know, I hate to use it. Right, actually, but size, right? Facebook is too big to monitor its own platform. And the incentive structure is all messed up, right? It's virality. So, you know, folks who want to spread a political message or want you to buy their, you know, vitamins or just, you know, maybe like Chewbacca mom, everybody's looking for this virality, looking to grow big or grow rich or tell lies through this incentive structure. So, you know, um, we could do something about that. The internal research says, actually, oh, if we just turn all of these knobs down and just quiet Facebook and just maybe content, uh, have people have real connections, then maybe that would all go down. And that's something that they call content neutral. And it's brought up again and again and again in these papers. And then every single time, though, of course, Facebook's never going to do that because not only do they want to be as big as possible now with this meta thing, they want to be everything to everyone all the time. It's scary stuff. So, Nina, this is this this brings up a whole new set of questions. Facebook has identified what the problem is. Facebook has the ability to fix it. Facebook, as a feature, has decided not to fix it because this is a very profitable feature for them. And the question becomes, what responsibility does Facebook have to the rest of us? And whose responsibility is it to make sure that Facebook is actually responsible? Because no one, everybody's researched it. No one's done anything about it. Yeah, I think this has been a really frustrating time for people like me who have been researching these problems. A lot of the things that have been coming out in the Facebook papers are things that I've written about for years, right? And I'm not the only one. There are a group of us who have been sounding the alarm. And so I think it's time for us all to scrape our jaws off the floor and get to work. Not only Facebook, which has clearly been basically intransigent in fixing its own problems, but Congress, which through its own you know, partisanship has really lost a lot of time and created such a large hole that we now find it ourselves in with Facebook now, you know, moving into the metaverse, which frankly, I want no part of if Facebook is at the helm. They've shown no corporate or technological responsibility to bring us into an area that could open us up to more and more harms. And we need Congress to do something about it, just like they would regulate an unsafe vehicle or airline. So, Brandy, if Congress is where responsibility could lie to at least start fixing this, is the reason they haven't done it because of partisanship or, or just ignorance of the issue? Because when you see these hearings at Congress, you see a handful of members of Congress who have some really good tight questioning that indicate that they are well read on the issue and they understand what solutions could look like. And then there's just a lot of nonsense that goes on uh, that, that leads me to believe that, that this this Congress is not going to be able to fix this problem. Yeah. So is it partisanship or just not knowing what's going on? I think um, why not both? <laughs> you know, there are a lot of different ideas for how to solve this problem. Right. Anybody that says um, this is a simple fix obviously is um, not well uh, researched on this topic. It's it's really complicated. Um, there are people like the whistleblower Francis Haugen thinks we should, you know, sort of fix Facebook from the inside, have some outside research help. There are others who think we should break it up with antitrust legislation. Some people say that we should hack away at Section 230, um, but every solution really has its problem. So the fact that they're taking a long time, I, I just I, I find it to be a, 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 a normal problem to have. This is a really, really hard problem to solve. Stand by. I want to continue this conversation about how we actually regulate this and uh, how we can come out on the other end with some success. Brandy's addressing and Nina Jankowitz. Uh, I want to continue the conversation after a quick break. 
Back with me now, NBC senior uh, reporter Brandy Zadrozny and digital and disinformation researcher Nina Jankowicz. Nina, I want to pick up on something you said about regulating uh, social media and, and digital companies the way we might legislate airlines. Airlines could actually run uh, more profitably if they did things that were a little less safe. I, I assume in the long run they figured that's better than crashing planes. But the government has been very clear on the fact that uh, your ability to make more money does not trump uh, dealing with, with public safety matters. As, as Brandy has uh, pointed out many times, th- there's real danger that comes out of social media. Forget the decline of democracy, but the, the medical uh, disinformation that comes out of it. Why is it so hard to apply those types of public safety rules to uh, to the Internet. Well, you know, Ali, I think that for a long time, congressmen and women just didn't believe that online harms could become offline harms. Around this time last year, I was testifying before the House Intelligence Committee, and one of the members of that committee really took issue with my thesis that disinformation was dismantling democracy. And I thought of him on January 6th when, Mm -hmm. you know, protesters were storming the Capitol. This is clearly a public safety issue. And now that is uh, being laid bare before laid bare before us with these Facebook papers. So hopefully this is a wake-up moment for Congress people. Obviously, there are free speech issues to get around here, but this is a country of ingenuity, right? If right. if the European Union can do this, if countries like Estonia can counter disinformation, they're small, they have less money than us, then why can't the United States do it? Let's step up to the problem and protect people. Brandy, what do you think of the idea? I think Roger McNamee and others have floated it of an, an FDA-style entity that, that that governs the Internet. Is that possible? Sure. Um, who's going to sit on it? Uh, you know, well, there, yeah. there, I'm just uh, there's a lot of questions for this. And I think that, you know, you just look at, like you said, the hearings in Congress. And although the questions are getting a little better, there was a, a science subcommittee that did an excellent job the other day. Um, but there just really, really is a misunderstanding. So I, I think like there's there's just there's just a lot of complications that come with this. I don't when you come when it comes to like solutions, the solution set of conversations, that's where I always get a little stumped because there are a lot of possible solutions, a lot of things thrown out there, but we haven't really tried anything here. And you know, we have um, you know, the, the first amendment and we have like specific things in our country that make it a little um, more difficult to regulate speech on the internet and I just think that it's a very hard problem. Solutions are not yeah. going to be just as easy as slapping a warning sticker on something or, you know, having an FDA of the Internet, and that solves all our problems. And lying is not actually illegal. It's protected uh, speech. Nina, interesting point that um, I, I saw in uh, an op-ed the other day, and it said that if the meta rebranding is Facebook's way of truly pivoting away from social media and fully toward virtual reality, that's even worse. We barely trust tech platforms with the Internet. We certainly can't trust them with virtual reality. As we increase the use of virtual reality and augmented reality technology, we blur the line between cyber and physical spaces. Interpret that for me. How dangerous is it now? I have one of those Oculus things, you know, from uh, Facebook. I use it for exercise, by the way, despite the fact that it doesn't look like I exercise that much. Um, but, but to me, it's just a fun thing. W- what's the danger of the fact that, that Facebook's irresponsibility in dealing with content could now become my virtual reality? Well, let me speak to you as a woman, Ali. Uh, Brandy and I have both received some pretty grotesque, vitriolic, violent threats online. And imagine if that is no longer just text-based threats. It's someone who feels like they're in the room with you saying that to you, threatening you. 
we haven't solved those problems for the virtual reality that exists. Facebook has, you know, shown that it is really reticent to solve those problems on the platforms that it has that it exists. And frankly, you know, I don't trust them to solve those problems in a world where those threats are much, much more harmful and meaningful and are going to affect people, especially women, minorities, and people of intersectional identities. So we got to slow down here before we, we dive into this universe uh, head first. And, and frankly, as I said before, I do not want Facebook at the helm. Brandy, what do you think of this? this uh, how this because what Facebook does in the world of virtual and augmented reality right now is very different than the posts that are on social media. It's a completely different world. Are, are you worried that the same governance structure at Facebook could cause this to become a, a, another dangerous uh, platform for things? Oh, yeah, I think it's it's insane for anyone to think that Facebook would be a responsible or Meta, sorry, would be a responsible steward for um, this new reality. Like, it's just that's not even a that's a non-starter. Like, it just seems so clear that this is not the company that we should entrust um, with that responsibility. You know, I think that Facebook, a part of this is trying to find out, you know, a way to be cool again because they need children um, because they're not on their platforms and they're leaving even the platforms that they do have Instagram, right, uh, to go to Snap and to go to TikTok. Um, but I don't know. The metaverse yeah. also seems like an incredibly far way off right now. It seems like all they've figured out how to do is <laughs> put um, pantsless avatars in online meeting rooms. So I'm not so scared yet, but I do think that we should be very, very skeptical of uh, Facebook or Meta's um, all right, you well, know, move the, into the new reality. The two of you are the canary in my coal mine. So uh, when you tell me it's time to be worried, I will be very, very worried. Uh, thanks to both of you for joining us this morning. Brandy Zadrozny, NBC News senior reporter. Nina Jankowitz is a uh, Wilson Center disinformation fellow and author of How to Lose the Information War. And that does it for me. Thank you for watching. Catch me back here tomorrow morning from 8 to 11 a.m. Eastern. I'm going to be speaking to Democratic representatives Debbie Dingell and Ayanna Presley about all things Build Back Better and the January 6th investigation. 